Last week, Pastor Tim has done a phenomenal job in this study called Following in the Dust. I think he was saying walking in the dust, so I kept getting confused, but I think it's officially called Following in the Dust. And last week, if you were here, he talked about the cost of discipleship. Well, actually, this week, I want us to go back into Luke chapter 14, but I want us specifically to drill a little deeper today into the heart of discipleship, the heart of discipleship. So we see in Luke chapter 14 that it seems Jesus is at the top of his ministry if there is such a thing. In verse 25, we read, great multitudes went with him. As you already know, if you were here last week, Jesus is about to thin the crowds, but that doesn't take away from the point that it seems Jesus had completely won over the masses. So we have here this massive crowd who's gathered literally from all over the place to see Jesus in action. No doubt word had gotten around about this incredible teacher who made the blind see and the lame walk, and he even turned funeral processions into family reunions. Uh, The point is, though, people didn't know what to expect at this point. They showed up expecting to see a miracle, maybe some more free food, and just maybe this was the guy to overthrow Rome and restore political freedom back to Israel. The point, though, that I don't want to miss this morning is that the crowd showed up to watch Jesus work his magic. I don't know if you know this, but there's a big difference between a fan and a follower, I actually learned this lesson at my first UGA football game. Now, understand, as Mike said, I'm from the North, and in the North, we have a deep sense of respect for SEC football. Well, minus Auburn, of course, but, you know, we, 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 respect, we respect SEC football just because of the level of competition and, and talent and whatnot. But um, my first Georgia football game seemed like a pretty big deal to me to be there live and experience it and I'll never forget the experience during that opening kickoff how loud that stadium was then all of a sudden as the kicker went to kick off they erupted in this chant that went something like go dogs sick them and then everybody began to bark (laughs) it is it's laughable and But all of a sudden, I looked at my wife, who's now, or sorry, who I was just dating at the time. She's now my wife. And I'll never forget looking at her and thinking to myself, wow, for such a cute girl, she sure does bark like a man. (laughs) But it, it hit me. It hit me that this was the only place probably in the world where thousands of people could come together and hang out and bark at the top of their lungs and that be seen as normal. So I was exposed. I realized that at the very best, I was just a fan, but these people were passionate. They were committed. They were followers. See, a fan by definition is nothing more than an enthusiastic admirer. This described me at, at the very best. I mean, just because I had the cheapest UGA shirt that I could find at Walmart on didn't mean that I was ever committed. My heart was never really in the game. In fact, looking back, I think I did it primarily just to get the girl, and thankfully, that worked out. (laughs) But I realize now that I was nothing more than a fan who applauded at a distance. Now, as we get to this scene in Luke chapter 14, I think it's fair to assume that the majority of these people gathered in the crowd, they weren't actual followers of Jesus Christ, but they were more fans. 
It seems to me that their hearts were never truly in it. Although they applauded Jesus at a distance, they had never truly followed him up close. Yet still at this point, Jesus seemed okay with the fans who showed up with popcorn and extra butter ready to be entertained. He didn't seem to mind that many people were showing up because they were curious and they wanted to know more about him. However, the time comes for all of us when Jesus will draw the line in the sand to find out where we really stand in our relationship to him. You know, the, the scary thing that I realized as I was studying this scene in Luke chapter 14 is that it might be a very accurate picture of what our church looks like today, especially here in the South. I mean, if we're going to be completely honest for a moment, Jesus is very popular here in the South. Let's face it, Jesus is popular down here. We rep him on our billboards. We rep him on our bumper stickers. It seems like there's a church on every other corner. Just the other day, as a matter of fact, we were headed to Stone Mountain to hike, and we came across this church, and the sign read, Walmart ain't the only saving place. Come and join us this Sunday. I'm like, hello. This is real down here, people. But for so many of you, I think if, if I were to ask the question today, are you a follower of Christ, you would think, well, yes, of course I am. I mean, I grew up in church. I've known the B-I-B-L-E song since I was five, and I could quote all 66 books in one breath, duh. But you see, there's a big difference between knowing about God and actually knowing him. I think so many of you, you've confused a knowledge for intimacy, You've confused a one-time emotional decision for lifelong, wholehearted discipleship. For so many years now, you've applauded Jesus at a distance from a pew or from a chair, but you've never truly followed him up close. It was time to separate the fans from the true followers. So I have two simple goals in our time together this morning. Number one, I pray that for every single one of us, we would be able to better assess where we truly stand in our relationship or lack of relationship with Jesus. Asking yourself, are you a fan or are you a true follower of Christ? And then number two, my prayer is that all of us would be able to better answer the question, is Jesus one of many or is he your one and only? Because Jesus goes on now where he sees the multitudes gathered before him to hear him speak. And he says in verse 26, if anyone, keyword anyone, comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, there's a key word that sticks out to me right away, anyone. What Jesus is saying here applies to anyone and everyone who wants to truly be his disciple. So the question to really ask then, does following Jesus really mean that you have to hate your Nana? <laughs> well, certainly not. This would contradict all of his other teachings, but why then Jesus such strong language, dude? It sounds to me like you need to take a chill pill. Well, if we really think about it, number one, in Jewish culture of that day, to follow Jesus without the blessing of your family could potentially be seen as hating your family. So Jesus is honest and upfront about what it might cost to truly follow him. Maybe some of you in the crowd right now, you feel like God's speaking individually to you saying, yes, that might be part of it. If you're not willing to choose me over your family's approval or your own personal comfort, then you're not ready to follow me and you should just join the crowd and go on home. 
But I, I still, I look at it, and I'm like, surely though hate is a little strong of a word, right, Jesus? So what, what is he really saying here? Well, we know that the word hate that Jesus chooses here is a Semitic word, which means to love less. I think the NLT captures what Jesus is really trying to say best, where it says, if you want to be my disciple, you must hate everyone else by comparison. He's saying you must love me that much more. He's saying that the worth and the value of Christ in our hearts should be so supreme that by comparison, it appears as though we hate everything and everybody else. But do we really get that? Honestly, I don't think I get that most days. I think for all of us, if we're gut level honest, there's this constant never-ending competition going on for the affection of our hearts. I think if you could just draw a picture of it, it would look something like a racetrack where all your closest loved ones are lined up in the lanes and they're competing for first place every day, every moment in your heart. So in lane one, you give a spot to yourself because if you're anything like me, you really do love yourself. Hello, somebody. (laughs) And then in lane two, maybe you give a lane to your spouse or a boyfriend or a girlfriend and then, you know, some friends and parents and maybe you give a lane to your career, your hobby, and then in lane seven, you decide to be gracious and give a lane to Pastor Tim because you think highly of him. Well, let's be honest for a second. Just because Pastor Tim could throw a baseball doesn't mean he could run. So there ain't no way he's taking number one in your heart. Then, of course, all the way in the back in lane eight, you have Jesus. (laughs) And on it goes this never-ending competition for the affection of your heart. I don't think this is at all the picture that Jesus is trying to paint up in this verse. I think a much more accurate picture would be a racetrack where there's no race happening because Jesus is the only one on the track. I think the point Jesus is trying to make is that there's no competition. There's no comparison. He he wants us to realize that he's not interested in second place. He wants us to love him first, period. He wants to be your one and only. But I know for some of us, man, we read verses like this, and we're like, man, it just sounds a little crazy to me. I've thought that. It sounds a little unrealistic. Like, chill out, Jesus. But let's just, let's picture this scenario for a second. Uh, Imagine a proposal, maybe your own proposal, husbands, where you got down on one knee and you delivered some beautiful, eloquent speech that I actually messed up royally because I was so nervous. But the, the point is, you, you go to propose and you say something like, I love you, sweetheart. I want to spend my life with you. Will you marry me? To which she responds, well, I love you too, and I'm committed to you. However, I have just one condition. I want us to see other people too. I'd be like, hold up for a second. Number one, give me the ring back. And number two, that's scandalous. That's not going to fly. Well, my question then is, Why is it okay for us to say essentially to Jesus, I love you, Jesus. I'm somewhat committed to you. I mean, I'll show up on Sundays and I'll even give you 10%. However, let's not be exclusive. There's a a fundamental problem with that thinking that Jesus is trying to point out here. And what he says basically is that you cannot be my disciple if you choose to follow me half-heartedly. 
So I want to ask you a few very simple and practical questions right now to help all of us better assess where we really stand in our relationship to Jesus. Is he one of many or is he your one and only? Number one, what do you treasure most? I actually stole that right from Jesus. He says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be, Matthew 6, 21. So between yourself right now, what do you think about most? What do you daydream about? What do you fantasize about? Stuff that nobody else knows. How do you spend your time? How do you spend your money? All of these things I think are pretty good indicators of where our hearts truly are. And you see, when you're not satisfied vertically in your worship of God, it will cause you to shop horizontally, looking to people, situations, things to be the savior they can never be. So for so many of us, unfortunately, in the church, we're not truly satisfied in our vertical relationship with Christ. So it's caused you to pursue horizontal relationships and hobbies and stuff as the ultimate treasure of your heart because you're convinced that somehow those things will bring you the significance and the satisfaction that only God himself can bring you. Understand, though, as soon as good things become ultimate things, they become God things. Lowercase g, that is. But I'll never forget this man that I met by the name of Rod up in Warsaw, Indiana, where I'm from, right before I came to faith. He was actually the, the dude who set it up for me to go to the Dominican Republic where I actually came to faith on December 2nd of 2009. But, man, there was something different about this dude, Rod. I had never met an individual so full of joy and radiance. It was something that I just didn't understand. Rod went on to tell me we met for coffee before I left for the DR, and he told me about how he had just quit his job to focus full-time on a ministry in the Dominican Republic with some pastor he met on a vacation. And Here I am about to graduate college and take on the world and climb the ladder, and I'm thinking to myself, like, this dude is crazy. Like, what is up with him? And I realize now, looking back, as an unbeliever, what I was really asking is, where is this guy's treasure at? I don't know where it is, to be honest, but the point is, his treasure's somewhere else. So where's your treasure at today? Because I truly believe when Christ is the first and ultimate treasure of your hearts, that those on the outside looking in on your life will see something different about you and in the way you do life. Number two, when you're hurt, where do you go for comfort? Now understand, my goal is not to minimize or downplay your pain and suffering today, because I know for some of you that's very real. But I do wanna ask you to contemplate now, when times get tough, when you go through pain, where do you turn? For some of you, maybe you turn to a best friend or somebody from church, and that's a good place to go. Maybe you try and numb yourself with Facebook and Netflix. Maybe you turn to self-pity or the fridge or both. Maybe you drown yourself through work and busyness and the pursuit of success. I don't know. Maybe you try and escape the pain through sex, alcohol, and drugs. Whether they're good things or not, all these things have the potential to steal the affection of our heart. 
So I must ask myself, at my very lowest point, do the things that I run to take the place of Christ in my heart? The psalmist David, he actually goes on to say that in Psalm 119.71, my suffering was good for me, for it taught me to pay attention to your decrees. He's saying that pain was actually a good indicator of who he was truly following because, you see, when you're truly following Jesus, ultimately, he'll use your pain and suffering to bring you closer to him. As crazy as that might sound for some of you right now, I believe it's true. So who or what do you turn to when times get tough? Number three, this is kind of silly, but I'll ask it anyway. What, get, what gets you most excited in life? I'll never forget the first time that my wife got to watch an Indiana basketball game with me. She couldn't believe how into the games I got. And there was a, a pretty intense game, we'll say, going on with one of Indiana's rivalries named Kentucky. I don't know if you've heard of them. But um, we ended up beating them on a last-second buzzer beater. And I remember just jumping up out of my seat and my wife looking at me thinking, like, I've never seen you get that excited before. And at first, like, I was feeling good about myself, like she was impressed with how high I jumped or something. And then I'm like, well, duh, it's Indiana basketball. And then it hit me, it's Indiana basketball. I'm like, I mean, you looked me in the eye as I said my marriage vows to you. You get to see me every single Wednesday up there teaching the next generation about Jesus. And this is the most excited you've ever seen me. As silly as it may be, ask yourself, what gets you most excited in life? Hunting, fishing, when others speak well of you, your career, your success. These things may be a very good indicator of where your heart really is. For some of you, maybe the better question to ask is, what gets you most frustrated in life? When Georgia Tech loses again, when gas goes up, when somebody unfriends you on Facebook. You see, the things we get most excited or most frustrated even about may be an indication of who we're truly following. Whether it's a good thing or not, every single thing has the potential to be a substitute for God in your heart. See, what we see here. And Jesus' teaching in Luke 14 is that he wants us to follow him and him alone. He's not interested in sharing your heart. But the problem with that is that most of us, if we're truly honest with ourselves, we refuse to put God on the throne of our hearts. And instead, we keep a couch on our hearts, and at best, we give Jesus maybe a cushion but we refuse to let him occupy the most central place of our heart and of our worship. But Jesus here, he, he's about to speak very harshly in Luke 14, making it very clear that if we follow him, we follow him and only him. What he's saying is that he's not willing to share you, not with a job, not with a hobby, not with a relationship, not with a family member, no, nothing. He wants to be your one and your only and once again, you know, we, we hear something like that and we're like, why so harsh, Jesus? Well, 
I think, to be honest, I think he's speaking so harshly to this crowd and maybe to some of us because he realizes that there's a fundamental problem that must be dealt with if we're going to be true followers and disciples of Jesus Christ. The problem that he's trying to deal with, I don't think, is how much you come to church or whether or not you get in the word every day. It's not whether or not you tithe or how much you give to the poor. No, I think the problem that Jesus is dealing with in Luke 14 with that crowd and with our crowd here in church today is a problem of worship. I mean, if you think about it, it's the ongoing drama of this broken world. It is and always has been a drama of worship. I mean, the gospel story is all about the, the robbery and the restoration of true worship. If you trace it back to Genesis in the Garden of Eden, understand Adam and Eve didn't have a behavior problem. They had a worship problem. See, sin is so much bigger than a few bad choices. All sin by its very nature is idolatry in that we try and remove God from the throne of our hearts and maneuver ourselves or something else into his rightful place. It's nothing new under the sun that I'm making up here today. And then in Exodus, the wandering Israelites, they too had a worship problem. They had removed the God of Israel from the throne and instead inserted the God of security, the God of personal comfort, the God of twisted pleasures. So God has to lay it out for Moses, reminding him through what we know as the Ten Commandments. In Exodus chapter 20, verses 2 and 3, he says this, and I believe there's a reason this one comes first. He says, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. To be completely honest with y'all, I desperately needed this reminder in my own life. Just through my own personal study and meditation on some of these passages, I realized that as I prepared to share this word with y'all, that I put a very unhealthy expectation on myself to please y'all and to earn your respect as the student pastor who comes in to fill the shoes of the big man. And what, what God showed me, which was very humbling, is that when I put y'all before him, that's idolatry too. My need for your respect and your approval is idolatry and God's not willing to share my heart with you. So it was very humbling. I needed this reminder and so do all of us, I think. God, he reminds Moses to remind the people that I am, I am the Lord your God. I'm the one who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of bondage. Understand that. I'm the one who rescued you from slavery, from the addiction of self-gratification and personal pleasure. I'm the one who freed you from an unhealthy codependence upon others, who freed you from the bondage of living for the approval and the applause of others. I'm the one who saved you from the God of self-absorption, the God of self-pity, the God of self-glory. I'm the one who swallowed sin and death in you and gave you eternal life. You didn't do that for yourself. And you shall have no other gods before me. Meaning don't turn away and give your heart to false gods who cannot save you and surely will never satisfy you. I'm the only one, he says, who's worthy of your worship. 
And then in verse four, he goes on to remind Moses, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And as I studied that just in my own personal time, I made this connection that, you know what, that sounds awfully similar to what we're seeing here. And Jesus says in Luke chapter 14 that, you know, unless you hate your family and your friends, you can't be my disciple. And I think for many of us, we read stuff like this, right? Man, it sounds to me like God's struggling with some insecurity issues, or maybe he's just a little too over-demanding or possessive. Well, let's just imagine this scenario for a second, and this is a very hypothetical scenario, but um, let's just say that you go out to eat in Loganville, and you see me there dining with another woman on a date, and immediately... You call my wife and you say, "Uh, listen, girl, you're not going to believe what I just found. Your husband is on a date with another woman. To which she responds, well, it's okay. I already knew that. He's allowed to date other women as long as I'm number one at the end of the day. Number one, I would be dead like five minutes after that phone call. But number two, (laughs) number two, that would never, ever fly. You see, her, her refusal to share my affection and devotion doesn't make her insecure or overly demanding or possessive. No, it actually proves her wholehearted devotion to me and only me. In the same way, we need to understand that when God says, I'm a jealous God, you shall have no other gods before me. It isn't just a statement as to how he wants to be loved by you, but a statement as to how much he wants to love you. See, he understands that he is the only one who at the end of the day can meet your ultimate need and satisfy the deepest desires of your heart. So he loves you and he pursues you and he's committed wholeheartedly to you and only you ultimately for your joy and for his glory. He's that good. But do we really get that? question that we have to ask ourselves, just as Paul asks the Corinthians, the same struggle that happened to Adam and Eve was going on in the early church. It's happening today. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11.3, but I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. So I have to ask myself, Have I been led astray from a pure and sincere devotion to Christ? Understand, Jesus didn't come to fix your behavior. He came to reclaim your deepest desires, thoughts, ideas, motives of your heart. Jesus came to restore you back to your original intent, and that is to worship God. The point we need to see today and every day is that discipleship or becoming like Jesus and helping others become like Jesus, discipleship begins inwardly. True discipleship starts with a pure and sincere devotion to Jesus Christ. You see, it's only a sincere love for Jesus that can protect us from all the other loves of this world that have the potential to steal our hearts and make us ineffective as disciples. It's only a pure worship of God that can guard us from the seductive idols of this world that promise what they can never deliver. 
It's only the glory of Jesus Christ that can guard us from the temptation of self-glory and living for the praise and the approval of man. It's only through deep joy and satisfaction produced in Jesus Christ that can cause us to overflow with his love, even in the messiness and the difficulty of disciple-making. We only get one life. If, I, if I've learned anything in 29 years of living, it's that life is short. I want my life to count. Don't waste your life. Let us be reminded today to truly live every day and every moment with the great commission in mind. That is to go. And as you are going, as a disciple and a follower of Jesus, make more disciples of all nations, of all places, whether he calls you to Loganville or another city, another state, or another country, Let us not forget why we're here. We're here to know God and to make him known. It's that simple. So I close with a conversation that Jesus had with one of his closest disciples, a man by the name of Peter. So Jesus looks Peter in the eye, the same disciple who denied him three times. And he proceeds to ask Peter, the same question over and over three different times. What was the question he asked Peter? He said, Peter, do you love me? Peter, of course, of course, Jesus, you know I love, no, Peter, do you love me? Well, I think, no, Peter, do you love me? Notice Jesus didn't ask him, Peter, do you respect me or do you admire me or do you appreciate me? Do you applaud me from your church pew? No, he said, do you love me? Every single one of us, let's put ourselves in Peter's shoes right now. And just imagine Jesus Christ himself standing face to face, looking you in the eye, and he poses that question, do you love me? Well, I think so, Jesus. I mean, I go to church and I get in the word occasionally. No, do you love me? Well, yeah, I'm pretty sure because I I usually give 10%. No, do you love me? And if you can say with all your heart, yes, Jesus, I love you. Then the same answer he gave to Peter, he gives to you. Then go feed my sheep. What we see here is that authentic discipleship starts with a pure and sincere worship of Jesus Christ. Discipleship begins when Jesus is the first and ultimate affection of our hearts. So as we close the day, are you a fan or a follower of Jesus? Is he one of many or is he your one and only? 